Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was born right here on Long Island. He grew up in Port Washington, graduated from Schreiber Senior High School, where he served as student council president. He earned the BA in economics at Tufts University and a JD at Harvard Law School. He's the author of four books, Goodbye Gordon Gecko: How to Find Your Fortune Without Losing Your Soul, The Little Book of Hedge Funds, What You Need to Know About Hedge Funds But the Managers Won't Tell You, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success, and Trump, the Blue Collar President. He served as the White House Director of Communications from July 21st to July 31st, 2017, is a thrill to welcome the man we came to know as the Mooch, the one and only Anthony Scaramucci to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Anthony. Hey, welcome. My next book is How to Get Fired a Couple Times and Survive the Firing, Mark. How about that? That'll be my fifth book. Thank you for having me on. I am a huge Met fan, by the way, and for a short period of time, I owned a piece of the team before I sold it to my good friend, Steve Cohen. Uh, And again, very small piece, but it was a lot of fun. And I have an NLCS championship ring as a result of that, which I'm very proud of. uh, And I have it in my house. Nice. So as you mentioned, you're a Mets fan. Let's start with that. How did you become a Mets fan? Do you remember the first game you attended and who was your favorite Met? So the first game I attended at that time, my favorite Met was Tommy Agee, number 20. First game that I attended was in 1969. I was six years old, maybe five and a half years old. And if you remember back in the day, the field level seats were uh, painted like a yellow color. And we were about seven rows back uh, in between third base and left field. It was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. My father uh, got those seats from, uh, he was a foreman at the time. He got those seats from the, the guy that owned the company that he was working at. And the Mets were playing the Braves. The Mets won that game. And uh, I got some souvenirs and I was hooked into the Mets for the rest of my life. So it's been a 52 painful (laughs) year love affair. And you're laughing because you're probably a Mets fan as well. You know that we know how to survive pain and stay loyal under all circumstances. So it's interesting because we are Met fans of a similar age, and a lot of the the Met successes came at various stages of our lives. Um, you mentioned the the Mets are five or six years old with the Miracle Mets. You're nine years old. The '73 team goes to the World Series. You're then in your early twenties with the '86 win the championship. Mid thirties for the Subway Series, and fifties in the last time that they made it to a postseason. Do those experiences change? because of the various places you are in your life, or are they just as new as they were when you were a kid? So sort of, sort of crazy to say this, but in a weird way, no, because it's sort of timeless. I sort of feel like your fan relationship is a childhood relationship. And you and I both know, Rosamond, that we're overgrown children. Okay, we haven't fully developed. And so we, we hang on to that team. I'll tell you a quick funny story. Uh, the 86 World Series, I was at law school, so I was having a hard time paying attention to it. Got to see game six and seven, thank God. Uh, but I missed the first five games, frankly. 
uh, due to studying and the anxiety of being in law school. Uh, the 2015 World Series in March, I got booked on a troop support mission to Afghanistan in October of 2015. I remember my wife turning to me and said, well, you know, isn't that when the World Series is? You sure the Mets are not going to make the World Series? I laughed. I said, honey, come on, the Mets are not going to make the World Series. I'm going to go to Afghanistan. Of course, the Mets made the World Series, Mark, and I missed the first two games. I was in Afghanistan on my way back. So, um, you know, it's one of those weird things, but I have a tremendous love affair with the team. I believe Steve Cohen, by the way, uh, in the next three to five years, we're going to win a World Series. And so you and I are going to be celebrating. Hopefully we'll be together somewhere. I'll be hitting you with some champagne. Uh, and I love, I love the chemistry of today's team. I love the culture. I love the revitalization. I love the energy. I just wish we were out of a pandemic. You could see the fan base turn out and support this team. This team likes each other. Uh, and of course they've had some bad breaks. They've got some injuries. They've got some setbacks for some star players. Uh, we haven't gotten Carrasco on the field yet. The hamstring, obviously, you know, is a tough recovery from Syndergaard coming back in June, but that's Tommy John. So, you know, that's going to take them a while. Uh, but, you know, look at what, look at where they are now, despite the injuries. And I think that speaks to Sandy Alderson, frankly, if you don't mind me saying this, he's a baseball man and Steve relying on his baseball expertise. They filled out the bench. They have an exceptional group of bench players uh, and middle relief pitchers, all hand selected by Sandy Alderson and his team. And I think that that speaks volumes to where they are today because of it. Absolutely. And I actually spoke to Luis Rojas the other day about how these role players, when they were being, you know, stockpiled in the offseason, could he ever imagine that they're going to be everyday players because of this wrath of injuries? But you're absolutely right. September 21st, 2001, Mike Piazza hits one of the greatest home runs ever hit in the city of New York. Ranks is one of the greatest moments in sports history. You, along with three other people, purchased that jersey for $365,000. You said at the time, the jersey represents getting knocked down, stepping into the batter's box, hitting home runs again, which all of us have to do no matter what unspeakable acts happen in our lives. It's a great representative of the, what the Mets are about. Why was it so important for you to be able to purchase that jersey to ensure that people would have access to it? Well, it just hit me. You know, I, I lost a lot of friends on 9-11. I was at that game uh, with my family in, in my suite at Shea Stadium. Uh, my lifelong dream, when you have that bucket list, I was always going to have one of those corporate suites at Shea. I rolled it into City Field. And uh, I took some kids that night who lost their dads. Uh, on that night that you're talking about. And remember, the Mets were down. Place was loaded with police officers and servicemen. And uh, it was a very warm night in the sense that uh, there was a lot of warmth in the stadium and love for each other and a lot of pain. And the Mets were down. Uh, and when Mike hit that home run and put the Mets back on top, the emotion. Now, you're old enough to remember Shea Stadium. Uh, the the suspension in Shea Stadium. Remember when that stadium used yeah. to hump and rock? When uh, yep. you, if you were in a corporate box, which I was at that time, and saw the stadium moving, I remember thinking to myself, "Okay, we're going to pull out of this. Uh, it's unspeakable pain, unspeakable tragedy. These young men and women losing their fathers, mostly, and some obviously lost their moms. It was mostly dads. If you looked at the roster of people, unfortunately, at least from the town I was in, and when that went up for sale." 
And again, I don't know what happened. The Mets sold it. I guess the person selling it, I, I actually got to meet the person that we eventually bought the, the jersey from. He was looking to just pay for his kids' college tuitions. That was the reason he was selling the jersey. Uh, and we made a decision to buy that jersey because we did not want it to leave the city of New York. Uh, Mike asked it to go up to the Hall of Fame for the uh, Cooperstown induction. I think it was in the Met Museum at City Field for a little period of time. And, you know, as far as we're concerned, our agreement is it's the Hall of Fame, it's the, the Met Museum at City Field, or it's in residence at 9-11, uh, the 9-11 Museum to the end of time. I don't know if you've been to the 911 Museum. Obviously, yeah. it's closed because of the pandemic. But if you go up the escalator, it's right there. And again, I just think it's a representation of New York. It's a representation of the culture of the Mets, the miracle of the Mets, right? The Mets are still, to me, the amazing, 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 amazing Mets that Casey Stengel said that they were. They still represent that miracle. It was a return to National League Baseball for this great city. Uh, Gil Hodges, who's uh, over your left shoulder there. I'm looking at him right now, <laughs> and I'm thinking of him, and I'm thinking of the teams that he was building before he unfortunately died uh, in 1972. And I'm thinking of the love affair that I've had with that team my whole life. And a couple of my buddies, also Met fans, uh, all of which had owned a small piece of the team with me uh, that we all bought together in 2011. Like, hey, there's no way we're letting this uh, jersey leave the auspices of New York, and now it's on display for everybody. And, you know, for me, it makes me feel good about that. And when I think about it, I miss my my friends that I lost on that day uh, 20 years ago. Can you believe it, Mark? Yeah. 20 years ago. Can't even fathom well, it. I, just... I hope, now, God willing, I'll be in the stadium Sunday night, September the 11th. The Mets are playing the Yankees, and I'll be there to remember those people and say a prayer for all of them. Yeah, I'll be there that night as well. It's interesting because you you mentioned how you did have, have a share in the team and, and you you and the other investors when they bought that, you know, the the percentage kept the team afloat. I'm wondering, we, we talked about the different stages of your life if fandom changes. When you're a part owner of the team, does it change? It does. I mean, I'm going to tell you why it's going to probably get me in trouble with everybody once <laughs> again. But I was on a sports <laughs> talk radio. I'm talking like a fan, you know. And apparently I had a uh, confidentiality agreement as a limited partner. And I, you know, as a fan, I probably expressed some frustration about a decision personnel or otherwise. And so, you know, I got a gentle, polite rebuke from senior ownership, like, hey, you can't talk like that as a owner. Uh, and so I had to dial it back. And that was embarrassing for me, of course. I don't, I'm not trying to say anything to hurt anybody's feelings, but you have to understand, I'm a fan. You know, I... I love Steve Cohen for so many different reasons. I've been uh, an investor of his. We're friends a long period of time. What I love about him, he's also a fan. I mean, you can follow him on Twitter and he emotes the way a fan does, which is why I think the fans, you know, he he has a, uh, an enduring love from the fans as a result of his fandom, you know? And so look, I, I, uh, yeah, it did change. I'm, um, I'm happy to no longer be an owner. Uh, I'm, you know, a little wistful about that. But the flip side of it is Steve Cohen owns the team. God bless him. He'll, he'll do an amazing job with the team. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a good friend of Bill Mars, the uh, American comedian. And we were uh, laughing with each other over the past weekend saying, yeah, the minute we sell the goddamn team, they go on a streak. They're, they're in first place, you know. <laughs> 
You know, back in 2016, I ran into Bill O'Reilly on the field prior to Met Yankee game. And I asked him if he had to assign a political party to each of those franchises, what would it be? And he basically said he never conflates the two. So I'm going to ask you in a different way. What impact does your family have during your childhood on what teams you follow, as well as what your political beliefs are? Well, I think it's the whole beeswax, actually. I think it's the whole ball game. So uh, you have to remember, uh, I came of age in 1969. Uh, my cousin, uh, who is named Michael, who went by Mickey because of Mickey Mantle, is 10 years older than me. He's a diehard Yankee fan, obviously went by the name Mickey. Uh, and they had celebrated amazing teams. And of course, the Yankees have won 27 championships. So us as Mets fans, we have Yankee envy there. Although I will tell you that after 9-11, my whole Yankee thing changed. If the Yankees are playing a non-New York team, not the Mets, I root for the Yankees because I'm a New Yorker. So everything after 9-11 for me changed. But what I, what I will say is that, you know, my brother and I fell in love with the Mets in 1969. And you, you know something about real fans. Once they're in love, the love is unconditional. With the Mets, it goes un requited as we both know but it is unconditional and it is permanent and so for me uh I, I would say that you know the islanders when i was a kid i'm old enough where the islanders weren't an expansion team until 72 i guess so i was already a ranger fan with eddie jackman and brad park and they were in the stanley cup in 72 so my love affair started with them the knicks 69 73 the jets were out here uh, practicing in hempstead Joe Willie Namath was living out here. So, you know, I've got the quartet of teams that offer some level of frustration to New Yorkers. I'm a Jet, Ranger, Nick, and Met fan. Uh, but having said that, I will be that way for the rest of my life. So, yes, is the answer to your question on sports. On um, politics, this is a unique story. My dad was in a union. Uh, I was 18. I went to uh, the post office back in the day to fill out the selective service card. You remember that? We used to have yes. to fill that out. We didn't know yes. if they were going to reinstate the draft. And I also registered to vote. And I turned to my pops. I said, you know, am I a Democrat or Republican? What am <laughs> I? And, you know, nobody really got this, but, you know, real politicos. Uh, the Republican Party out here on Long Island in Nassau County controlled the unions. And so, you know, David Axelrod, who ran Barack Obama's campaign, I did his podcast. He said, you know, you're a Republican because your dad was in a union controlled by Republicans, which was a very rare thing. And I said, yeah. I said, how do you know that? He goes, oh, I remember Joe Margiata, who was the GOP head at the time in Nassau County. And so I turned to my dad. I said, am I a Republican or a Democrat? He said, no, 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 you're a Republican. You put down Republican. <laughs> And so then I, you know, said, okay, I'm a Republican. I got to study Republicanism and figure out what that is. And then, of course, Reagan, when I was a kid, like you, was a very popular president. So that cemented it for me. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk politics on a sports talk show, but, you know, I think the Republicans have lost their way, frankly. I've been pretty vocal about that. I, I, I'm, I'm primarily a centrist. I'm sort of pro-business, but I also don't care who marries who. Um, and I'd like to see these parties, frankly, converge and come back together to help the country. I'm more about right or wrong policy, Mark, as opposed to left or right ideology. 
that's so well put because, and we very rarely, like, you know, I don't even put things on Facebook or Twitter when it comes to politics, but, but similarly, I consider myself, you know, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, but, but here, here's a, a, you know, something that has stuck with me and, and longtime listeners of this show has probably heard this song, this story a hundred times. So Eric Hillman down at Met Fantasy Camp, you know, told me the reason why he comes back to Met Fantasy Camp year after year is it kind of it, it restores um, his faith in humanity. He says Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservative, garbage men, lawyers, accountants, they come down. You know, no one knows who's who. You know, they get drafted on a team. They play for a week as teammates. And they don't care. All they care about is their love for the Mets. So I guess the question here is for me is I have a best friend who is an Islander and Yankee fan. I'm a Met and Ranger fan. Okay. He watches like the, yeah. Oh yeah. We're four for four in the four you mentioned. Um, he can watch the yes network. I can watch SNY, but now you change it and make him a conservative, make me a liberal. I watch CNN. He watches Fox and all of a sudden, we no longer coexist anymore. What happened, and why? Why have we become this way? Well, it's a big, it's a bigger, bigger, broader conversation. But I think it's about national unity. And so I'll, I'll just put it to you this way: Back in the uh, Second World War, thirty-five percent of the families were linked to the military through the draft. They had an association with one of the four or five armed services, uh, armed forces. Uh, uh, when that war ended, we had the Korean War and the Vietnam War, and the process of selective service created national unity. Uh, you had people from North Dakota that were in the Army with people from New York and from Florida and Texas and so forth, and they, they got bonded by the national purpose and the national unity. You fast forward our generation uh, it's two, three percent of the people are are tied into the military, and we've lost the level of our civic unity. And so, when in, when that happens, and you get a little bit of prosperity, and thank God the country has, you sort of regress into some tribalism and some righteous thinking. And so, not only am I right, but I need to flummox you. Uh, and of course, in cable news, you get paid for screeching. Uh, so you get the news screeching into you on the left, it screeches in on the right, and then you've got to get ideologically centered and tribal. Um, and and then what ends up happening is, uh, you know, we excoriate and we start to dehumanize each other. So, so I don't know if that's going to happen forever. I hope to God that it doesn't. You know, I hope that we can heal uh, from that. I think we need leadership that allows us to heal somebody's got to break the log jam. Somebody's got to be president and say, okay, that's a right-leaning thing. I'm a left guy. I'm going to include that in my agenda. Uh, and then will that calm things down? You know, they're afraid they're going to get ejected by the left side or the far right side of their audiences. But I'm really do hope, I think most Americans love the country and they're somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I think we can find that unity, but we really do need it from the leadership level. Uh, the cable news networks are going to be like that forever. It's very, very profitable for them to be that way. But I think us as Americans, I'm hoping that uh, we exhaust ourselves from this nonsense and get back to something that's more unifying. Totally agree. Uh, there's one funny story that that I came across about you. Um, you overlap with a number of unbelievable people when you were at Harvard. One of them, you know, the president, Barack Obama, and you were at a fundraiser for him at the university club. And 
your donation, the story behind that donation is pretty funny. Could you share that story with our audience? Well, I mean, so I, I didn't know the president in law school, although many of my friends did. Uh, he gave a speech, keynote speech for the Democrats in 2004 in Boston. One of my buddies called me and said, hey, that's Barack Obama. Do you remember playing basketball with him? I honestly didn't. Uh, and so he said, well, he's going to eventually run for president. And in 2007, July, at the University Club, a group of Harvard Law alums did a fundraiser for him. And one of my buddies said, you know, come to the small VIP room, bring a donation for Senator Obama, and, you know, we'll all catch up together. And so I walked into that room and uh, I was on the greeting line. I got to uh, Senator Obama, then Senator Obama, and I, I took out of my lapel a check and I said, hey, you know, Senator, we didn't really know each other in law school. I said, but I'm about to give you a big check. I want to lie to everybody and tell them that we were close friends in law school. Are you cool with that? Well, Senator Obama smiled and he had he has one of the best smiles in American politics since Jack Kennedy. And he said, hey, man, if you double the amount of the check, we could take it right back to Hawaii. And so everyone laughed. You know, he was like, you know, and I said, OK, great. I ripped up the check. I had another check on me. I doubled the amount of the check. Everybody clapped. I handed him the check. And, uh, you know, that was actually my first foray into presidential politics. So ironically, I'm a lifelong Republican, never did presidential fundraising at that level, but did it for President Obama, uh, who was a Democrat. Now, I wasn't 100% in love with President Obama's policies. Love him as a guy, great person, Michelle Obama. I have no problem with sort of what you said about your friend watching Yes versus SNY. I can be in a room with somebody that is ideologically different than me and we can coexist peacefully. Uh, but I returned to my Republican roots. I went back to work for Mitt Romney. I got a lot of uh, guff from that, from some of my buddies. Uh, President Obama beat him. He sent me by FedEx from the White House, a picture of him on the Spider-Man, uh, you know, like the, you know, the, the cartoon books, the comic books. And it was signed by him, you know, just to let me know who's boss and who's not. And so that was fun as well. You know, I could, I, I had to take it as well as give it. Uh, and then, of course, there I was in 2016. I went to go work for Jeb Bush. He was unsuccessful. When Donald Trump asked me to help him, I went and did that. The rest is history. But as I said to uh, President Trump the day I got fired, he called me to ask me how I was doing. I said, don't worry about me. You just made me as famous as Ivanka. And, and uh, you know, you don't have to worry about me, you know, between Ivanka and your wife, you know, Melania, you made me super famous, as famous as them, and I didn't have to sleep with you or be your daughter. So I'm totally fine. You don't have to worry about me. But, but in any event, you know, look, I had a good relationship with him. I thought he got a little radicalized in the presidency, and I'm not radicalized. And so I had to call it for what it is. Some people are mad at me for that. Some of people respect me for that. I will tell you this, Mark, I have adult children. My oldest son just graduated from Stanford Business School. And he is like, man, you're killing me, dad. The Republicans dislike you because you left Trump. The Democrats are never going to accept you because you were with Trump. You're killing my networking opportunities. I'm like, all right, what can I tell you? I'm sorry. I'm trying to get closer to the truth. What can I tell you? So I want to put your time as the White House Director of Communications from July 21st to July 31st. And I really worked hard at trying to find a Met 
that symbolized those 10 days. And I found one and it's unbelievable. So the guy I came up with is Valentino Pascucci, who played in 10 games for the Mets in 2011. His highlight was a game tying home run off of Cole Hamels. Um, you had memory, many memorable moments during those 10 days. Um, which was your Val Pascucci moment? Ironically, his nickname was Scooch. Um, what was your moment as, as director? I think, I think my I think my best moment was the press conference. You know, I was really trying to heal the relationship the administration had with the press. Um, I was very conscious about calling on CNN at that time. They hadn't been called on for three or four months from the <laughs> press podium. So I was looking for the CNN correspondent and I, I called on Sarah Murray, who was sitting in for, I think, Jim Acosta. And um you know, they came at me pretty hard, the press, which was fine. You could go back and watch that press conference. I, I responded to them uh, as openly as I could. And I thought the press conference went well. And I thought I was off to a good start. Where things got dicey was in the internal politics inside of the building. You know, you had a couple of different fiefdoms going on and they were supporting themselves, but they weren't necessarily supporting the president. And I was trying to clean that up. Of course, I said something off that I thought was off the record. The reporter said that it wasn't. Uh, the rest is history. I've never blamed anybody, Mark, but myself for my firing. People asked me about it. I said something ridiculously stupid, however, very funny. And you know, I'm from Long Island, so all my friends are like, "Okay, that's Mooch." Of course, he said something like that. And you know, we move on. But the but the point is. I never blamed anybody for my fire, didn't blame the president, didn't blame General Kelly. I've become very close friends with General Kelly. We've done seven or eight speaking engagements together. He's come to two of my conferences now. Uh, you know, we're family friends now. Uh, my relationship obviously is non-existent with President Trump, but, you know, he started attacking my wife on Twitter. He didn't like something I said on the Bill Maher show. Okay, that's fine. I was actually defending him for the most part. I said one thing he didn't like. He started coming after me. I'm a New Yorker, Mark. I went right back at him. That's what you'd expect me to do. And then somehow my wife got involved. I just think that that's unsportsmanlike conduct. And that's when the real tussle started. And, you know, look, you know, you're talking to me now for 15 minutes. You know, I'm not Ted Cruz. I'm not going to take that sort of nonsense from, from a guy like Trump. So I had, to, I had to go in there and start swinging, which I did. I'm very proud of that. And we move forward. I'm now back in business and I'm uh, locked into my sports teams and I'm running Skybridge and uh, life is good here in New York. And I'm a New Yorker, Rosenman. You know, Spike Lee interviewed me for his 20th anniversary 9-11 doc, which is coming out on HBO Max. He said, oh, are you one of those hedge fund guys is going to leave us for Miami? And I'm like, no way. I'm here in New York, man. I'm here to help the city, improve the city. And like you, Rosamond, I'll be shutting the lights out on the city if we have to. But I think the city's brightest days are ahead of itself. We've got two amazing baseball teams, great football and basketball and hockey. And we got a great culture here. And the city's on the way back from the pandemic. And it's a very, very exciting place to live. And I'm not going anywhere. Awesome. I know your time's limited, so I have just a few more questions for you. Um, one of the statements you made during that time as director was, um, you said this about Donald Trump. I've seen this guy through a dead spiral, through a tire. I've seen him at Madison Square Garden with the top coat on, standing in the key and hitting foul shots and swishing them. He sinks three foot putts. I'm just thinking that might be a bigger lie than the big lie. For real, all that? No. So I'm going to send you a link and you can find it. Okay. 
He's with Jim Kelly, uh, and it's on YouTube. And it's at the Buffalo Bills Stadium. I'm not sure what the stadium is called. He's up there. He's a younger version of himself. They hand him the ball. He throws a dead spiral through the tire hole and he, uh, to great applause. Remember, that was before he became a politician and was polarizing. He was reasonably popular back then. That's like 25, 30 years ago. Um, the other two things you'd have to take my word on, <laughs> I've been on the golf course where he's hit those types of putts. And, uh, you know, his bodyguard could tell you this, Madison Square Garden, 1995, he was at the, uh, at the foul line. He hit a, he swished a shot and people cheered him. My, my point in making that uh, reference is that Trump is a gamer. Okay, now he lost that election very narrowly, the second election, but he had a lot of guys that were allies of him that turned turned on him due to the wretchedness of his personality. The first time around, you know, he was not supposed to win. He put it through the hoop. So I was making that as a metaphor, but I can back up those things. But I'll tell you what, I'll send you the link on YouTube. A lot of people on Twitter light me up and say, oh, yeah, Trump could throw a spiral through a tire. I said, "Okay, let's go to the videotape, as Warner Wolf used to say. And there it is. It's not like I made it up. So not a big lie. Uh, I've told I've told some whoppers, but I didn't tell any in the White House, thankfully. Uh, But like most people, I have I've had some big whoppers. Trust me, uh, any fish that I have caught has never been described at the actual size. (laughs) You know, the director of communication job truly blows me away, no matter who it is. All right. Because you guys have to have complete knowledge and recall uh, and the amount is just insane. And, and to put it kind of in terms that Met fans could understand, it would be like after the 86 World Series, Jay Horowitz comes out and the press asks him in detail all about Davy Johnson's moves. And Jay Horowitz knows every single thing about those moves. What was the day like? What, what was the preparation? What, was the, what is the day in the life of, of the communications director like in the White House? Well, again, I was there 11 days. So I will tell you that it was nonstop work. It was incredibly stressful in the beginning. And also because there was a lot of infighting that made it even more stressful. There was not a lot of cohesion on the team. But that first day when Sean Spicer resigned as a result of my hiring, I was fine with that because there was one less person that we had to fire. Uh, We made the decision to make Sarah Huckabee the press secretary. The president wanted me to go give the press conference that day anyway. And so Sarah is a nice person. Uh, People may disagree with her politically, but I liked her as a human being. And she brought me into her office and she wanted to prep me for the press conference. So she had 35 people in her large press secretary's office and they wanted to talk about Korea and what was going on with Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was in the room, the conference was gonna start at two o'clock. It was at 1130 briefing. I looked at them and said, okay, guys, time out a second. I don't want to do this. Number one, it'll be too much data and information in my head. I will never remember it. And number two, I will lack authenticity in front of the press. uh, Like I'm trying to spit out sound bites, which are rehearsed. Let me just go up there and introduce myself and I'll field the questions at the best of my capability. If you watch the tape, some people ask me questions. I said, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Uh, You know, I got to get back to you after this is over. I'll get your number. I promise you, I'll get you an answer. I don't know the answer. And I think that was refreshing for people. You know, I didn't go up there in total spinmeister mode. Obviously, the the tire example, people thought it was me spinning. But again, I'm going to show you the video on that. Uh, but you know, 
I did a lot of television in my life up into that period of time. So I was dialed into the conversation. You know this from Sports Talk Radio. I don't think about the audience. I think about the person I'm talking to uh, the same way I am on television. You know, someone's asking me a question. I'm dialed into the question and want to give it as authentic of a response as possible. I think where things got, got away from me that week is I trusted somebody that I shouldn't have trusted. You know, this was a, a gentleman from Long Island. His father had worked in construction with my dad. They knew each other forever back to 1965. And I overlaid my dad's relationship with his dad. And I was very colloquial as a fellow Italian American out here. And I made a mistake. He said, okay, I got this guy now. I can burn him. He didn't technically say it was off the record. Let me run to CNN and the New Yorker. And uh, since I hate Trump, this will hurt Trump and it'll blow him up. And so he did that. And uh, by the way, you know, he had the right to do that. I don't blame him. That was a decision he wanted to make. I remember my conversation with him. I said, wow, wow, if you do that, you and I will never talk again. I said, super transactional to do something like that. Why don't you want to build a long-term relationship with me? Uh, you know that I wouldn't have said that if I thought it was on the record. And he said, no, it's an important part of my story. I'm bringing it to the to the tape. And I said to myself, okay, I've got 72 hours here. I'm either going to be forgiven for this or lose my job on Monday. And of course, Monday morning, I got fired. Uh, I shook hands with General Kelly. I walked out of the White House. Uh, and then the firestorm hit me. Uh, the late night comedians, the, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I got rolled in broken glass and then salted with margarita salt and lit up on Saturday Night Live. Okay, I'm just I'm just letting all your listeners know if you're ever having a bad day in your life, I want you to think of me getting fired from the White House <laughs> and the aftermath of that. It'll put things in perspective. But here's the message for everybody. Own your mistakes. I made a ton of them. I don't live with any regret. I always tell people, take the millstone of regret off your neck, put it down, go forward and enjoy your life. You know, we're, we're just visiting planet Earth. As the immortal Mel Brooks says, Mark Roseman, uh, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. I try to live by that. You know, that is amazing. Because the, the last question I have for you, which I you kind of answered right there. I want you to put your director of communications hat on in a baseball setting. How would you have told Francisco Lindor to handle the altercation he had in the tunnel with Jeff McNeil? Well, you know, I think it got handled roughly okay because we're making a joke about the rat and the rodent. And I don't know, you tell me what the team's record is since they had that altercation. I mean, he'd be doing amazing. So uh, I, I wouldn't change anything now that I have the benefit of that hindsight. But if I was in the minute and they turned to me, I would have said, Hey, we had a disagreement. We're very passionate guys, but uh, down deep, we like each other. We shook hands and we're, we're moving on. And I can tell you a lot of my friendships in life have started with some level of antagonism. And I'll just give you an example. I got fired by General John Kelly. It was his first official act as the White House chief of staff. Okay, so is that a rat or is that a raccoon? Okay, let me tell you something, man. It felt like an atom bomb. Uh, but here we are four years later and we're the best of friends and we both love the country. We both have a lot of uh, things in common philosophically. And so Guys know, and women do as well, but in sports, you're so passionate, or in politics, you're so passionate, you can be in a scrum and still really like each other and end up bonding, and perhaps even being closer uh, post-scrum than you were pre-scrum. And so I probably would have told people, hey, 
we got into it a little bit, but we love each other and we're going to be on that field fighting for the team and the fans. Uh, but at the end of the day, if they, if they, if they keep winning, I want them to say rat or raccoon right until the world series, Mark. <laughs> Anthony, thanks so much for your time tonight. I've been a fan of yours for quite some time now. Your appearances on Cuomo prime time were always must see TV. Unbelievable stuff. You always, you, you strike, you uh, you know, a fellow New Yorker, you 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 strike you know, the person you want to hang out in a Met game and, and have a beer with. Well, That's- I appreciate it. Well, look, I have a lot of passion. I obviously love that team. You know, I hope I hope that came across tonight. I, you know, I, today I, I really love that team, and I wanna I wanna be uh, I wanna be with you when they win the World Series. Okay, because I think we deserve it, Mark. Okay, we deserve <laughs> I- it. I, 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 you know, from, from your lips to God's ear, I mean, that would be unbelievable. I, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did tonight, and I really appreciate it. I did. I really did. I hope you get me back. God bless, man. Anthony Scaramucci, lifelong Met fan, among many other things.